Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 217. It's titled Rebalancing, Overvaluation, Market Timing, and Stock Splits. A number of different topics today based on listener questions. It's an unusual episode. I typically prep two to four hours on Mondays for the podcast. I record on Tuesdays. I maybe do another two to three hours of prep work prior to recording, but not this week. This week, I spent Monday in Yellowstone National Park. We took a day trip, left at eight in the morning got back after midnight, had some friends in town, wanted to show them the park. We had our son and daughter-in-law in town. August is not a good time to go to Yellowstone National Park. It's smoky and it's really, really crowded. So it wasn't my first choice, but that's when people could go. So we went, but it took most of the day. As a result, some of today's show I have recorded right now, such as this discussion on rebalancing. The rest of it, though, is audio I recorded this past Saturday for Money for the Rest of Us Plus members. And when I re-listened to it, I thought it it was something that you, if you're not a Plus member, would find equally as interesting. So I'm going to start talking about rebalancing, and then we'll transition to that additional audio. Got an email from listener George, and he writes, my U.S. funds have done well, but they essentially moved together. And my international funds, including emerging markets, also generally moved together, but have not done so well. Being a dutiful rebalancer, I have shifted money into the non-U.S. portion to the point that I, the amount I have in non-U.S., especially emerging markets, is much higher than I intended. Where is the point that you should stop rebalancing? As an extreme example, if two investments were negatively correlated, you could keep funneling all your growing assets into another that continues to drop until you have nothing. So you might have less volatility in your portfolio, but still have lost everything. Rebalancing generally means to, to, it's the practice of periodically restoring the allocation among the asset classes back to their targets. But it assumes there's actually targets there. And the reason why they suggest doing it is either it will increase performance with the idea of better performing asset classes will do worse in the future and worse performing asset classes will do better. And so you'll have this return to the mean and you could pick up a little bit of improved performance by rebalancing. Or you do it to reduce the tracking error that you don't perhaps want 
as you get more and more into stocks, as stocks do better than bonds, and you might have more risk in terms of potential drawdown that then you might want. And so that would suggest some rebalancing. Now, approaches to rebalancing, you can do it based on a time basis, like I did as an investment advisor. We would periodically, you could look at, maybe do it annually, or you can look at bands or thresholds. Is it 20% outside of its target and then base it on that? I also did that as an investment advisor. I have used both approaches. The question then, what is the best approach? Should it be based on the calendar, based on how the assets have performed in terms of some type of threshold? Well, Vanguard, a few years ago, wrote an article, or representatives of Vanguard, titled The Best Practices for Portfolio Rebalancing. And they point out the primary goal of rebalancing strategy is to minimize risk relative to a target asset allocation. So not to maximize returns, but just to minimize risk. Vanguard found there wasn't an optimal frequency or threshold for rebalancing that just had to have a reasonable approach. I also recently read an article, and I I discussed this on Money for the Restless Plus, called Opportunistic Rebalancing, a new paradigm for wealth managers. It was by Gobind Dari Anani. He's a CFP, a PhD. He looked at it and found that kind of a 20 to 25% threshold for a given asset class was the, the better performing method and to look at it every couple of weeks. Now, the problem with rebalancing studies, it depends on how many asset classes you use, depends on the time frame, depends on what the fees are in terms of trading cost. What doesn't often get asked is, as an individual investor, why bother? I don't rebalance my portfolio in that I do not have a certain rule where once a year I rebalance back to my targets, nor am I looking at thresholds. And the reason why is I don't have any targets. Once you have a number of asset classes, both public and private, private being asset classes that are not valued every day, things on different private equities or leveraged buyouts, perhaps you have some private real estate, you own some apartment, I've done debt investing where I've lent to others. So you have all these pieces. And so the idea of I need to rebalance my portfolio to move back to a target so I reduce the tracking error of my performance relative to that target, it just doesn't work for me. Now, I'm regularly selling something if I've achieved the, well, for example, so I've sold a small cap, micro cap momentum growth fund, Rehouse Capital Management. The fund's already closed or has been closed. I sold some of that. I kept some 
sold some because it was up 27% year to date, had done extremely well, valuations were getting high, a little bit frothy. I sold it. I didn't base it on a rebalancing rule. The reason why rebalancing is so big among financial advisors is because they're managing hundreds of accounts. And so it's a systematic way to look at the portfolios they manage and bring them back in line with your target. But as individuals, our targets can fluctuate. There's a lot more wiggle room. We have that flexibility. We can add an asset class that we just learned about and want to experiment with. Just, just to try it out. Now, not going to be a big allocation, but you're not going to set this is I've got a 3% target here and I'm going to rebalance. And so I think as individuals, we have the flexibility to be a little more fluid. Now, some might want a more mechanical approach. Here's my target for every asset class. I like to do my spreadsheet once a quarter and rebalance back to the target. When you look at these rebalancing studies, the performance difference isn't that pickup, isn't that great. The study by the, the opportunistic rebalancing, the best approach achieved about a half percent better than not doing anything. But again, it would have been dependent on the time frame used. And so I think we, we worry too much about rebalancing. Now, that doesn't mean we keep putting more money, as George mentioned, to where you just keep plowing more money into an asset class that's going down, thinking it will rebound in his extreme example. We don't do that. We don't need to be, if an asset class is going down, has downward momentum, maybe there's a reason for that. So maybe we we do not want to be putting more money there. And as individuals, we have that flexibility. Before we explore the other topics on this week's episode, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash David. That's netsuite.com slash David. netsuite.com slash David. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This point, we're going to turn to the rebroadcast of Plus Episode 216. Plus episodes are weekly Q&A episodes and other investment strategy update to do where I share what's going on in my portfolio. I do this weekly for members of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. You can sign up for the list to be a Plus member. Be notified when it reopens by going to Money for TheRestOfUs.com. Recording this in August 2018, we'll be reopening to new members next month, later part of September 2018. If you're listening to this after that, go ahead and, and get on that wait list, and I'll notify you when it opens up again. One correction I need to make from the audio, I discussed Chris Cook's book, Slash Retirement Risk, and I talked about a back test he did, a simulation, a five-year simulation. And in the audio, I said they did the five-year back test. And when they tried running the strategy, didn't do as expected. That was actually a hypothetical example that he was giving for why five-year back tests are too short. I argue that the 20-year back test that they did to develop their strategy is probably also too short. But I wanted to at least make that correction. Enjoy the audio. A couple of members sent me an article that was in the Wall Street Journal this past week, and I'll link to it in the show notes. It was written by Mark Holbert, who runs a, I guess you'd call it a newsletter service where he evaluates different investment newsletters. He's done a long time. Very well done article, and it's titled The Eight Best Predictors of the Long-Term Market. Subtitles, here are the stock indicators with the enviable track records and the cautionary tale that they tell. What's interesting is that the best indicator was the one that we just talked about in plus episode 213, an indicator that Ned Davis, Ned Davis Research, went back 60 years and looked at the various valuation indicators to see which had the best record. And he concluded that that one of the best is household financial assets. The percent of the households, the percent that households have allocated to stocks of their total financial assets is what I'm trying to say. In fact, in the article, they quote Ned Davis that says that this particular indicator record is remarkable. Now, the indicator currently is at 56%. So 56% of household financial assets are allocated to stocks. These are U.S. households. Ned Davis's research showed that when it's above 53%, the return over the next 11 years was total cumulative return was 26%. So less than 3% a year. When it's below 35%, 
allocation, the return has been 257%, so over 25% per year. Now, I thought Holbert did a great job describing when you look at indicators, you want to see how accurate it are, and usually the measure that they use is what's known as the R-squared. And, and I thought he did a good job explaining that. Let me just read it. To figure out how accurate an indicator has been, we calculated a statistic known as the R-squared, which ranges from 0 to 100% and measures the degree to which one data series explains or predicts another. In this case, 0 means that the indicator has no meaningful ability to predict the stock market returns after inflation over the next 10 years. On the other hand, a reading of 100% would mean that the indicator is a perfect predictor. So the, this household measure of allocation to stocks had an R-square of 0.61. So that was the best. There was a number of other ones listed there, price to, mostly valuation measures. So price to sales, price to book, dividend yield, the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio. The Buffett indicator, which is the U.S. stock market capitalization as a percent of gross domestic product. I actually talked about that in the August 2018 Investment Conditions Report. There's the Q ratio, which is the total price of the market divided by the replacement cost of all its companies. I first became aware of that measure back in the year 2000, right before the internet bubble burst. There was a book by Andrew Smithers. He's an investment manager and author. It was called Valuing Wall Street, Protecting Wealth in Turbulent Markets came out March 24, 2000, and it was all about the Q ratio, which was never very intuitive to me. So it's not something I spent a lot of time on because how do you calculate the replacement cost of all those companies? So in the article, Holbert then goes to Jeremy Siegel, who wrote Stocks for the Long Run, always been a, a very bullish on the market, and he pointed out he had theoretical objections to every one of those measures, although he didn't really address in the article objections to the allocation of household financial assets to stocks. But he reminded us in the article, most of those indicators have been bearish for years that the stocks have enjoyed one of the most powerful bull market in history, mainly because... As we've discussed, valuations for the U.S. stock market have increased to where those long-term <laughs> indicators are very high. Now, the question is, will they, can, can they continue to get even, this market get even more expensive? Absolutely. And that was one of Holbert's points, that just because the market is expensive doesn't mean it's a turning point and it's time that that the time for market get cheap and that we can use it as a timing vehicle, strictly valuation. You just can't. What we can use it as is for what it's supposed to be used for, to set expectations. Given these high valuations, what is a reasonable return for stocks over the next decade? And what is the range of those potential returns? In fact, they talk about those indicators, even those indicators their forecast predictions went from, I don't think I actually wrote them down, but it was sort of less than inflation to inflation plus 3%. So 
So they were all essentially less than, oh, here it is right here. So the most bearish projection of any of them was that the S&P 500 would produce a 10-year total return of 3.9 percentage points annualized below inflation. The most bullish was 3.6 points above inflation. So that's what, negative 2% to plus, let's say, 6%. We're on money for the rest was plus for the U.S. stock market at about a 5% expected return, but there's a range of probabilities, and, and that's why there's a range. And so these, long, these, these valuation measures are good for context, for understanding where we are now, and to say, probably not a good time to put all of your retirement nest egg in U.S. stocks. There are other options for a diversification standpoint that their longer-term returns are perhaps just as compelling or more compelling, and that, that's what they're good for. They're not good for timing the market. And I, I liked a couple of the analogies right at the end of the article. First, they quoted... Robert Schiller, who said that he didn't know any valuation indicator with a record extending as far back to the 1950s, who is predicting above average returns for the stock market right now. So everything's sort of below average, and I have to kind of use the weight of evidence here. And then they quoted Ben Inker, who's head of asset allocation at GMO. He draws the analogy to a leaf in a hurricane. You have no idea where the leaf will be minute or an hour from now, but eventually gravity will win out and it will land on the ground. That's a, that's a great analogy. In fact, in my book, I, I use something similar, not, not quite as eloquent as, as his, but just when we go out on a journey, it's helpful to know what the weather conditions are. We can't predict whether, you know, when exactly a specific storm will hit, but we can be aware of the season. We can aware aware of the chance of of lightning strikes, for example. So if we're climbing, my son's been climbing, you know, he spent the summer down at Capitol Reef National Park. Well, I mean, there's certain days where you don't want to be climbing high on some of those red rock peaks if gets to be afternoon and the, and the probability of storm is higher. So you make sure you can get off before the storm hits. But it, it, it's all about context. Which brings us to our second topic. I remember right to say, I heard about Chris Cook's book, Slash Your Retirement Risk, where he advocates exiting stocks at a, when this member said a 20% drop, the book actually said, a 10% drop, and then go to cash or bonds until a 15% rise from the S&P 500 bottom. Member goes on and writes, I'm a frustrated, recovering, buy and holder. Cook's very mechanical strategy appeals to my lazy side, so I thought I would ask your opinion on it, assuming you know about Cook's strategy. Why, I, I hadn't heard of Chris Cook, which sort of surprised me. He's His firm's based in Dayton, Ohio. It's called Beacon Capital Management. 
He's the president and CEO. They advise on over $2 billion and seem very active in what's known as the turnkey asset management space or TAMP, where you put models out and manage money for advisors, other financial advisors. And this is one of the aspects of my business that I was involved in when I was an investment advisor. I managed portfolios for other advisors. So I asked some of my old colleagues whether they'd heard of him because my former partners are in Cincinnati. This isn't that far, Centerville, Ohio, and they hadn't. So I was kind of disappointed. I was hoping they, they could say, he knows what he's talking about. And so I'm going to assume he knows what he's talking about because he's been able to raise $2 billion in investment. But this is not a strategy that he's been managing. It sounds like it got formulated after 2008. And the part I found, for, well, one, I tried to get on their website and get some actual performance record of their portfolios. And as soon as I clicked the box, I was not a financial advisor. It said, nope, you don't get access. So I I don't know what the returns have been. He calls his approach new ROI. When they're in the stock market, they're essentially running a portfolio equally weighted across all 11 investment sectors. So healthcare, consumer staples, real estate, consumer discretionary, et cetera. And the idea is to minimize losses. So he has these risk curves where when, he says, when the S&P 500 drops a predetermined amount, our research has shown that a drop of 10% is optimal. That's the trigger to a stop loss by selling your equities to limit your loss. The cash related to that sale then should be transferred temporarily into safer investments like more stable bond funds. U.S. Treasuries are even held in a money market account until the market recovers. With the do-it-yourself new ROI approach, the point of recovery, return to the market is simple too. A rise of 15% in the S&P 500 benchmark. So that took one paragraph. And then they said they did a back test, which they did. It was a 20-year back test that ended July 31st, 2016. Now, in the book, he talked about they he had run an options-type strategy, and they did a five-year back test and then started running the money during, kind of right before and during the financial crisis, and it didn't, didn't work out very well. And so his lesson from that is five years is too short, so they did a 20-year back test. I actually think 20 years is still too short. I mean, earlier we talked about Ned Davis and, and their back test went back 50, 60 years in terms of some of these valuation measures. I would have preferred a much longer back test. But with their simulation going back 20 years, so this goes through 2016, their five-year return was 10% annualized versus 13.2% for the S&P 500. So this doesn't always work. 10-year return annualized, 9.2% for their new ROI versus 7.6% for the S&P 500. And uh, 20 years was 104 versus 
0.2. Now, what I found frustrating is there wasn't, other than a couple tables, there was no data in terms of figuring out well, exactly how did you measure Because here's the problem that I had. According to, to their back test, there were only five times since 1998, or 90s, I guess it would have started in 96, where they moved out of the market. And that, when I look at, pulled up some data from Ned Davis Research to see how often we have gotten corrections more than 10% over that time period, there, there were definitely more than five times. And so I, I was a little confused about that. They did mention, they quoted a statistic, so the chance of a 10% decline in the stock market, this is going back to 1928, moving on to a 15% correction is 44%. The, the, the probability of a 15% decline moving on to something more severe and by more, let me rephrase that. So there's a 44% chance that a 10% correction will move to a 15% or more correction. And there's a 58% chance that a 15% correction would move to a 20% correction. And the, on average, a 10% correction occurs about, well, let's see, about once a year. And that's the part. That's the part that was confused me. So they only moved out five times. And it, it, these 10% of corrections, going back historically, occur about once a year. Now, and, and that's where a more, a longer back test would have been helpful to, to sort of determine that because maybe it was, maybe there's just been less. A 5% decline occurs about once a month, which is why we can't really be trying to as Schiller talked about in that article by Mark Holbert, it's not really possible to be forecasting these short-term 5% type declines. It's hard to even do a 10% because it's once a year. 15 to 20%, that's where some of the other investment conditions can have some input. But a couple of other things in the chart that concerned me a little bit is so they had a table where they showed, okay, here was the return where they exited the market and then went back in. And so what was the return over that? And then what was the return of the SP 500 during that period? So the, of the five times that they exited the stock market, three of them, this new strategy did worse than the S&P. So in 1998, they exited. They were out for three months. Over that period, they returned 2.2%, and the S&P returned 18.7%. They exited for six months beginning July 2010. That portfolio returned one2 and the S&P returned 25%. And they were out again in 2011, September, for five months, they returned 0.7%, whereas the SP returned 10.8%. So the, the two times that they exited this strategy was during the internet bubble. They exited December 1st, 2000. And 
didn't go back in until 2003. So they sort of missed the bear market of 2002. And they returned 18.7 versus negative 23.8. And the other time is they, they exited February 2008 and returned May 2009 and earned 4.7% versus the SP was down 35. So the two times were when I think, because I was investing money at that time, that it was possible to be aware of investment conditions, valuations, economic trends, the risk in the marketplace, and to, to make adjustments. But I don't think it's as simple as just get out when a 10% loss, because I think what happens is you risk what happened in three of the five instances where you actually get whipsawed and you sort of miss out in the rally. So it needs to be, in my mind, it can't just be that mechanical. Because markets just aren't black and white, in and out. It's what's going on now that suggests there are elevated risk and that we should be reducing our exposure. And that's why I do the investment conditions report. It's not either or, it's here's where things are and let's make a judgment, recognizing how difficult it is to forecast the future. So I, actually, I have some challenges with the approach for that reason. But let's uh, turn to the, the next thing. When they manage money, they're actually doing s sector neutrals or equal weighted by S&P sector. And I, I looked at the return of that. I found one ETF that does that. It's the Alps. It's equal sector weight ETF. And since inception, looks like this started in 2009, through June 30th, it's actually done worse than the S&P 500. So it's returned 14.4% annualized. As first is 15.5% for the S&P. Now, the idea is that this is going to be less risky. But when you look at the standard deviation of this ETF, it's 9.34 versus 9.74 for the S&P. So the not that much different. Now, I, I was hopeful that the return would be better in the down market. So I actually went to 2008 and 2009 to see, and we got some data from Ned Davis, to see how an equal-weighted sector approach would have done in 2009 or 2008 versus the total return. And it turns out to be the exactly same. Had you equal-weighted sectors in 2008, at the beginning of 2008, you were equal-weighted. You didn't rebalance until the end of the year. You lost 37.5% versus 37% for the S&P. If you then rebalanced at the beginning of 2009, when the market recovered, the equal-weighted strategy was up 20% versus the total market cap was up 26%. So the theory behind equal weighting is you don't get exposed to sectors that get out of whack, but I would argue the benefit of capitalization weighted or maybe more fundamental index weighted that's not weighted strictly by size is you get to participate in some of the momentum that's just inherent in the market. Now, I that little analysis, I didn't have quarterly data. I did annual rebalancing. I, I suspect maybe if it was annual or quarterly rebalance, it would have been better. I don't know. But again, we look at the ETF 
that ETF since 2009 has not outperformed a cap-weighted portfolio. So I, I don't sector-weight equal sector. I don't do equal sectors right now for that reason. Finally, I had a question from a member. He says, he asked, what factors do companies consider when splitting their stocks? What are the pros and cons? So a stock split essentially is they reduce the price and increase the total numbers of shares outstanding. So price goes from 50 down to 25. It doubles the amount of shares. Doesn't change the market value at all. And from an efficient market standpoint, it should have no impact at all in terms of the price. But there's been numerous studies that show that it actually does. By splitting the stock, there's the price jumps a little bit. Not, a, not much, but it's statistically significant in terms of the market price reaction to that. And one theory is, well, because it's, it's a, a lower price, it can attract smaller investors and they get excited and maybe that pushes the price up. But the question is, why would companies do that? And it, it gets back to, I think, the story the company likes to tell about themselves. You know, we're the kind of company that does X. And this is our culture. Take Berkshire Hathaway, the most expensive stock. Their A shares $312,000. I don't think they'll ever split that stock because it shows we're the kind of company that could grow our business and appreciate our equity to where it's grown to $312,000. Amazon is also an expensive stock. It's priced at $1,660 right now. It hasn't had a stock split since the early 1980s. And I found a Motley Fool article on this, and they they talked a little bit about the you know after the stock split in nineteen ninety nine obviously the internet bubble collapsed, Amazon's stock fell ninety five percent and so then it was sort of in the single digits and so if your stock's too cheap in single digits, then you sort of get to that level where investors think well. Is this even a viable enterprise? And so one risk of splitting the stock is that what if we get a bear market and there you are at single digits? Somebody asked Bezos at the shareholder meeting in 2017 whether they would ever split the stock. He said it's something they only cons- they would they, they consider but didn't really give any indication that they would, but Motley Fool pointed out one reason they might is if Amazon was going to be included in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is pretty prestigious. Not that many companies, it's 20 companies in the Dow Jones, but that idea is that Dow Jones would not have them unless they split the stock. Because, well, simply because the Dow Jones Industrial Average is a price-weighted Index, it's not weighted by company size in terms of market capitalization, it's weighted by price. And so 
if Amazon went in at sixteen hundred dollars, it would it would overweight too big a weight in the index. So that that's what's going on with stock splits. Typically, it's not something I really pay attention to, but price does jump a little bit. But I I think the reason why companies decide to not do it or or to do it, it, it gets back to their culture. What what kind of company do they think? What message does splitting the stock? Think Berkshire Hathaway, it's a luxury stock at $300,000. Not everyone can buy it. Now, that article says even at Amazon at 1500 I guess there are some brokerage where you can buy. Well, there are. Some of these new apps, Robinhood, things like that, you, you can buy fractional shares the way they've set it up. You don't have to buy all of it. So that, that certainly is a possibility. So the small investor can still get access to Amazon and other companies. So that's episode 217, kind of a, a mashup of an episode. The other day, a friend asked me, how many individuals receive your weekly Insider's Guys email? Because it, it's so valuable to me. And he was just curious. Well, it's, there's only about 5,500 people on that email list. So roughly, what, 15, 10 to 15% of the total listenership of money for the rest of us actually receive the free insider's guide email just fine you don't have to sign up but on there i'm going to send you the links for that week's episode but more importantly i send timely insight most of what i do on the podcast is evergreen but if there's something happening now or something i didn't put in the podcast or something that i want to share with you a weekly essay i do it's going there. It's not going on the website. It's not going into the podcast, but it's going to be in that weekly email. So go ahead and sign up at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've just provided investment education, general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week. <laughs> 